The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Uh, now, the other bad one, allegorical preaching. And there I'm using allegorical not in the sense in which Paul uses that term in Galatians, but I'm using allegorical where I think it means typological. But I, I, I'm using the term allegorical uh, in the sense in which it's commonly used among us today. That, that is, uh, it means an arbitrary connection of anything similar. And, uh, you know, uh, because we think by analogy, it's almost impossible uh, to be stumped on that. You can take any two things and find some relationship. And as a matter of fact, that's, uh, that's done in uh, business circles. Uh, when you're trying to work out a problem in business and you run into a brick wall and you don't see any solution, uh, then uh, in brainstorming sessions, what they propose is uh, that you work out uh, ridiculous solutions. You just come up with weird ideas off the wall. And, uh, and uh, uh, when you, uh, you say these crazy ideas that don't solve the problem at all, uh, the strange thing is, the thing is that sometimes uh, that generates a, a useful idea, something that will solve the problem. So uh, you can connect anything with anything. And uh, there's... Uh, uh, in uh, Hoekstra's uh, uh, book on uh, Reformed homiletics, uh, he, he, he talks about uh, uh, people who preach from unusual texts uh, in order to display their skill, you know, sort of uh, the idea that... Uh, now, <clears throat> just uh, let's not miss that. You see, this is a, a psalm of the lament of the individual. And when you try to classify the literary forms of the Psalms, uh, this is one uh, such form. In fact, it is the commonest form. There are more Psalms that are laments of the individual than any other form in the Psalter. Uh, and this Psalm is a particularly full representation of the lament of the individual. Uh, if you just look at this psalm for a moment, you see it starts with the cry of abandonment, <clears throat> and then in verse, uh, and, and then the lament, verse 2, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou answerest not in the night season, and am not silent. That's uh, verse 2. Then verse 3 begins a, a confession of trust. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not put to shame. There, there is the expression of trust. So the, the cry, the lament, the expression of trust. Then back to the lament again. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, 
Commit thyself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, seeing he delights in him. Right? Lament again. Then another confession of trust. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me trust when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God since my mother uh, bare me. Uh, Then a cry for help. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And then uh, uh, that cry for help really introduces another lament. Because uh, uh, listen to what he says. Uh, Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gape upon me with their mouth as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and so on. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Dogs have compassed me. A company of evildoers have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet and so on. The the passage I just read. So uh, the... uh, The lament here has the structure that is characteristic of Psalms of Lament, which always deal with I, they, my enemies, and thou, God. See, uh, I am a a worm and no man. I'm uh, uh, in a helpless and hopeless situation. They, my enemy, they're like wild animals all around me. They've got me ringed in. They're biting and uh, and, uh, about to devour me. Uh, They're like wild oxen who are going to gore me or dogs who are going to to bite at my uh, legs. Uh, I'm surrounded and uh, there's no way out. So I am in trouble. They, my enemies, are all around. And thou, Lord, where are you? (laughs) See, that's that's the setting. And then after the lament comes the... uh, the, the cry for help, um, which you, we have beginning in verse 19. But be not thou far off, O Lord. O thou, my sucker, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. See, there, there's the, the, the climax that the lament works up to. Uh, a prayer for deliverance, a prayer for salvation. Uh, you see, remember in John 12, when the Greeks came seeking Jesus, and uh, he realized that that marked the end of his ministry because uh, the Gentiles were starting to come in. <laughs> the, uh, the, the fruit was uh, starting to appear, and uh, the time had come, his hour had come, And Jesus, realizing that the cross was at hand, said that his hour was come. And then he said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. See, what shall I say? Shall I say the prayer, pray for the prayer of deliverance? Save me, deliver me. My enemies are around about me. But Jesus says, no, for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the voice from heaven, I both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now, of course, Jesus went on in his struggle as he felt the weight of our guilt and transgression being put on him. Uh, He struggled and he did say, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Uh, But uh, 
nevertheless, as John shows us, his ultimate purpose is to do the Father's will. And of course, that's in the synoptics as well. Uh, not as I will, but as you will. Uh, Jesus seeks ultimately the Father's will. So ultimately, he's not saying, save me. Ultimately, he's saying, your will be done. <clears throat> so there's the cry. Then notice this, uh, verse uh, uh, 21b. Yes, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have answered me. Now, the NIV uh, changes this to a petition. But I, I don't think that's right because it's characteristic of these psalms uh, to have statements like this. That is, the assurance of being heard. After the cry for deliverance comes the assurance of being heard. And that's what you have here. Uh, Save me, and Lord, I know you have heard me. And out of the assurance of being heard, uh, there comes... Uh, as, the, as the next step, uh, the vow of praise. Now, see, this fits in with the Old Testament uh, uh, thank offering, where you uh, make a vow to God, and then uh, as God, that you will bless his name and praise him if he will deliver you, and then when God does deliver, then you enter into his courts with a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And these psalms of lament often have a reference to the bringing in of that thank offering for the vow of praise. Remember the Apostle Paul, remember when he made, went to Jerusalem the last time uh, that he fulfilled a vow? He, uh, he uh, sponsored the, the thank offering for a vow uh, that he had taken. And uh, uh, that was uh, customary. That was following the, uh, the Old Testament instructions. And if you look in the other Psalms, uh, you see that uh, this vow of praise is uh, often given. Uh, look over at Psalm 66, verse 13. Uh, I will come into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I will offer unto thee burnt offerings of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. See, there's another instance of this uh, psalm, of this uh, offering of the vow, the vow of praise. And that's what's in view in Psalm 22. I, in verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the assembly will I praise you. Uh, he will uh, bring his vows into the, into the courts of the Lord. And in the midst of uh, the assembly of the people of God, uh, he will praise. And in that way, uh, he will fulfill his vows. And that's uh, mentioned again in verse 25. Of thee comes my praise in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. There it's repeated again. Uh, in the midst of the assembly, he will pay his vows. <clears throat> so, uh, the, in these Psalms of Lament, uh, you often have that statement of, uh, of praise 
uh, in the paying of a vow in the midst of the assembly. Uh, you have that again in Psalm 35, verse 18. I will give thanks in the great assembly. I will praise thee among much people. So the thought is uh, publicly and in the midst of the assembly, the one who has been delivered will come with his vow of thanksgiving, uh, offer his vow, uh, offer his sacrifice and praise to God, and then uh, uh, publicly praise God for his deliverance in the midst of uh, the people of God. <clears throat> now, after that in the structure of the psalm, you see what we've got now. We've got an initial cry, we've got the lament, uh, and that's repeated. You've got the confession of trust, and that's repeated. You've got the cry for deliverance, and then after that, the vow of praise, I will bring my vow of thanksgiving uh, when you deliver me. And then at the final part of the Psalms after that is the doxology, where you praise God uh, that he has heard you. And the remarkable thing is that the vow of praise is described and the doxology is uh, uh, uttered uh, while the sufferer is still undelivered. Uh, there is uh, the confidence in God's saving power and faithfulness so that the praise starts before the suffering stops. Uh, that, that, that you find that in these uh, psalms characteristically. And you see how it moves into that. Uh, <clears throat> you that fear, the, verse 23, you that fear the Lord, praise him, all ye the seed of Jacob. Glorify him, stand in awe of him, all you the seed of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, of thee comes my praise in the great assembly. And it should be translated that way. Uh, the praise does come from God. Uh, it's uh, God who, who makes, uh, gives the gift of praise in, in a sense. It's because he gives the deliverance. Uh, of, me come, of thee comes my praise in, in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek after him. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. You see how this moves into the eschatology of the Psalter. Uh, God's deliverance will be so great, so overwhelming, so marvelous, that uh, uh, the very nations will begin to join the praise. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he's the ruler over the nations. All the fat ones of the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall uh, bow be before him and uh, uh, the uh, the next phrase even he that cannot keep his soul alive is the way it's translated in my version but um, um, uh, the uh, the uh, commentator who's uh, always um, uh, amending the text uh, through the cognate literature Yes, thank you. I couldn't think of his name. <laughs> but uh, he suggests a, 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 an interesting um, uh, uh, translation here with a, one of those uh, cognate emendation things of giving a word a different sense. The victor himself destroy, uh, restores to life. That's what Dahoud says in his commentary. The victor himself 
restores to life. Um, that's, uh, that's why it's a good thing I've retired at this age. Names just escape, any, any names, whatever. And uh, uh, it's all right to forget names of uh, practically anybody with the exception of your grandchildren. But if you're a scholar, you dare not forget a scholar's name or you're cooked, you see, you're done. And uh, so thank you, brother, for uh, propping me up. I, Oh, that's great. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> okay, you had a question. Yeah, I was just looking at, uh, again, I guess, uh, two uh, phases. One is that I noticed the declared the name for my brother. I'm just wondering whether that implies that the, uh, thinking of uh, Peter talking about suffering being part of uh, being a Christian, whether that implies that the brothers would also have Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to read that into it uh, just in that setting. Uh, no, I, I think the point is it's uh, it's it's saying I'll do it publicly among all those uh, who hear me as I praise the Lord. Uh, of course, what you say is also true. That uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Uh, Okay, the victor himself restores to life. Uh, that uh, gives a pretty convincing support for that, but uh, uh, it does fit in beautifully with the end of the psalm. Uh, a seed shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord unto the next generation. They shall come and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he has done it. He's done it. What a what a what a dramatic conclusion to this great psalm! Uh, now, here's what I want to call your attention to. Here's a psalm. The whole psalm belongs to Jesus. Uh, when he says the first words on the cross, we don't need to be reminded that he knows the whole psalm. Uh, you, you don't need to be reminded that uh, the whole psalm is in his heart and mind as he uh, uh, cries out to the Father. Uh, but uh, what's put therefore on the lips of Jesus? Verse 1, yes. Verse 22, yes. Does that imply anything? Of course it does. It's his psalm. He's the suffering servant. He's the one in whom it's fulfilled. And so what does that therefore include? Is it uh, only Psalm 22 of all this classification of the Psalms of the lament of the righteous sufferer? Well, of course not. Uh, If uh, this Psalm applies to Jesus, then also we're pointed to understand that the Psalms of the lament of the righteous sufferer have Jesus in view. He is the ultimate righteous sufferer. Uh, just as for that matter, he's the ultimate righteous man of Psalm 1, the, uh, 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 just as he is the one uh, who has clean hands and a pure heart and can uh, uh, ascend into the hill of the Lord, uh, and not only the uh, victorious king of uh, <clears throat> the psalm, uh, but uh, also uh, the, of Psalm 24, uh, but also Uh, the one who is uh, the uh, righteous uh, worshiper, 
who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in his holy place. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into idols, nor sworn deceitfully. Uh, Jesus Christ is the righteous man. He's ultimately, of course, the only one who is uh, completely the righteous man. So you see, you see my argument, don't you? <laughs> that uh, if, if the whole psalm belongs to Christ, uh, then other psalms of lament also belong to Christ, where they present the situation of the righteous sufferer. Well, how about the sections of this psalm that are uh, expressions of trust? Uh, you see, uh, here's Psalm 22 that has expressions of trust in it, but Psalm 23 also has expressions of trust. It's a psalm of trust. The whole psalm is a psalm of trust. And that's another category of the psalms. Well, do psalms of trust belong to Jesus? Does he sing them too? Well, of course he sung them. Uh, he, uh, he sang uh, psalms in the upper room with the disciples. Uh, maybe he sang the group that are described as the Egyptian Hillel. Uh, uh, that would include Psalm 118, uh, which would be a remarkably appropriate psalm for the disciples to sing in the upper room before Jesus went to the cross. Uh, the, the very psalm that had the words that were used by the crowds when Jesus entered the city. Hosanna, they said, and that's out of uh, uh, that Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, out of Psalm 118. Uh, the uh, people saw that Psalm as Messianic, and they applied it to Jesus as Messianic, uh, and uh, they were right. Uh, Jesus sings these Psalms, uh, and he sings... Uh, not only as the suffering servant, verse 1, but he sings as the triumphant servant uh, in uh, verse 22. Now, uh, the other, other psalms also point to Jesus uh, because the anointed king also sings. And we have less trouble with this sometimes. Uh, we realize that Psalm 2 has to be messianic. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Uh, Jesus Christ is the messianic king, the son of David, who comes and is given uh, eternal and everlasting rule by the Father. Uh, he is uh, uh, the true uh, king of the nations who, who can uh, sing to the praise of God. So he is the anointed king, and the royal psalms, another category of psalms, belong to Jesus, for he is the ultimate uh, king. And the extravagant uh, praise given to the king in the psalms, uh, that extravagance is a mark of the prophetic anticipation in the psalms, because it has in view not simply uh, David or Solomon, but it has in view the promise, which are, is also made explicit in the Psalms, that uh, David will have a greater son, and that the son of David uh, will be the one uh, to whom all the glory will be given. And so uh, the, the, um, the heightening and exaggeration of a, a psalm that's written with Solomon in view is a heightening and exaggeration that points us to Jesus. And we'll see more of that in a moment. Uh, now, uh, I want you to notice, however, 
the, the, another aspect of this, that uh, Christ is uh, not only the one who sings in the midst of the congregation the triumph of the Father's name in delivering him, uh, but he also is the one who sings among the Gentiles. Uh, look at Romans uh, chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 and verse 9. I want to go back to verse 7. Romans 15 verse 7. Wherefore, receive one another, even as Christ also received you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ hath been made... Now, you know, I'm reading this, uh, as you know, I'm reading this old version, uh, American Standard Version, 19.1. I still use that version, and I use it with some apology to you, because I know nobody else has this version. But um, uh, I'm using it for two reasons. One, uh, it is uh, marvelously literal, (laughs) and uh, is very helpful as a study Bible, because... uh, uh, it keeps, as far as possible, it uses the same English word to translate the same uh, Greek or Hebrew word, uh, which makes it a good study Bible, but makes it uh, much less suitable for general reading than a, a version like the NIV that is more paraphrastic in its translation and uh, uh, uses uh, more idiomatic English. Uh, but uh, the other reason I use this Bible is uh, it's a remarkable production. Uh, because uh, it has every verse at the right place in every page. It doesn't misplace a single verse. And so you always know when you open it that the verse will be where it ought to be and hasn't slid off somewhere else. And uh, it makes it very important that you get exactly the right Bible if you've been using it for, well, I was ordained... uh, what was it, 50, 52 years ago? Well, I, I've been using it a long time, don't you understand? And, and you've got to have the verse where it's supposed to be. And I, I'm, I confess my weakness that I'm really afraid to go before people without the right Bible because uh, I've had that experience. You get another Bible and you can't find it. The verse disappeared. It just went out of existence. But, uh, well, uh, that, enough of that. Okay. Uh, now, this, uh, this verse, the re- the, that little uh, song and dance, uh, had to do with the fact that uh, here the translation is very good, very accurate, because it says, For I say, <clears throat> this is verse 8, Romans 15, For I say that Christ hath been made a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, that he might confirm the promises given unto the fathers. Now, the NIV has shifted that around and made Christ to be a servant of the Jews, right? Uh, They put in Jews for circumcision because they realize, a lot of people won't realize what circumcision means here. Uh, But uh, Paul wrote circumcision, not Jews. And he wrote a minister of the circumcision. So you've got a a genitive there, uh, which, which can be either subjective or objective. Obviously, Jesus can be either a minister of the circumcision in the sense that he serves the circumcision. And that's the interpretation that the NIV takes. 
which is a reasonable interpretation of the genitive, of course, that, that Jesus is a servant of the circumcision. So they throw out circumcision, say Jews. Jesus is a servant of the Jews. Uh, but um, the other interpretation is that he's a minister of the circumcision in the sense that he is a circumcised one, <laughs> that he is the true Israel, that he is the one who fulfills the calling of the people of God. He is a minister of the circumcision. He fulfills the purpose of the circumcision. And uh, look at the verse and which is Paul's meaning. Well, look at the context. He's been made a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God that he might confirm the promises given unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, what's Paul saying? Why well, he's saying, through Jesus Christ, the promises have been fulfilled so that the Gentiles can be brought in. The Old Testament promise is that ultimately the Gentiles will be brought in. And how will the Gentiles be brought in? Why, well, God has made Israel his servant to exalt his name before the nations, to praise God, so that the Gentiles would be drawn in to join in the praise. Uh, that's the way the Psalms always speak about it. Uh, and, uh, and this verse says that Jesus has been made a minister, Christ has been made a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, so that the truth of God's promises might be shown... Uh, <clears throat> that he might confirm the promises given to the fathers. Now, what does he do that confirms the promises? Why, he fulfills the covenant, of course. He confirms the promises because he does that which the servant of the Lord ought to do. He is the true Israel. And therefore, the blessings go to the nation. Now, uh, Israel wasn't particularly successful at that, were they? Book of Ezekiel, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of the sin of Israel. But if the name of God is not to be blasphemed among the nations, but praised among the nations, then you have to have a servant who fulfills these promises of God by keeping them. And that's Jesus. And that's what Paul's saying. So it's got to mean that in that, circum, in that uh, context, uh, that he, Christ has been made a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, that he might confirm the promises given to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. <laughs> for it is written, Therefore will I give praise to you among the Gentiles. Now isn't that... Uh, isn't that, isn't that beautiful? See? Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and sing unto your name. Uh, who's, who's the person? Who's the I in that quotation from Psalm 18? Who, who's the I? Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. In Paul's quote, who's the I? Christ, Christ, of course. He just says uh, Christ is the one who, Christ is the one who does this. He's the one who fulfills the promises that the Gentiles might sing. And so he says, as it is written. 
that he might confirm the promises given unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. Uh, the I is uh, Christ the servant. Uh, Paul's showing how this psalm points us to Jesus Christ. So Jesus, you see, sings not only uh, the vow of praise among the uh, uh, congregation, but he also sings the missionary song among the Gentiles, the missionary chant. He sings the praise of God uh, to lead the praise of the Gentiles because he has fulfilled the covenant in order that the Gentiles also might praise him. And uh, the little squiggles here uh, uh, point out Isaiah 66 and Psalm 96, 3. Uh, how the Old Testament speaks of the Gentiles joining in the great song of praise. Uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful, you know, how the Bible presents us, particularly in the Psalms, but also in the New Testament, how the Bible presents us with doxological evangelism. Everybody writes a book on evangelism. There's friendship evangelism and hospitality evangelism and small group evangelism. And, uh, so you ought to write a book on evangelism too, one of these days. And uh, I would suggest that title, Doxological Evangelism. Of course, uh, that will guarantee that no books will sell, but uh, you don't expect books to sell, really. And, and uh, doxological evangelism is a wonderful title for a book. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's what the Bible's about, <laughs> you know. And uh, uh, maybe more people have come forward in Billy Graham's campaigns to the singing of Just As I Am Without One Plea. But uh, uh, it's a wonderful thing that he picked as his uh, theme hymn, How Great Thou Art. That's good. <laughs> Praise God for his greatness. Glorify God for who he is. <laughs> And uh, that's the way we bear witness, really, isn't it? Um, it's, uh, it's really uh, the, the structure of witness uh, that we praise because he has uh, delivered us. You might not... Uh, you know, in that book that you write about doxological evangelism, uh, you can talk about how to do it on an airplane. Uh, you, you, you hum a hymn. Once the noise of the takeoff has died down, uh, you hum a hymn, and that opens the conversation. Isn't that a nice idea? Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 well, you, you, you all laugh, of course, and if you heard me humming hymns, you would laugh. But, uh, uh, but see, that's, uh, that's how... You've got to have a hymn in your heart if you're going to be a good witness, Really? Uh, you can't be backed into a corner and say, now that you got me, I have to admit I am actually a Christian. Uh, I mean, that's not the approach. <laughs> it's the approach of praising God uh, for what he's done. Uh, the, it's the way Peter does it, uh, isn't it? First uh, uh, Peter 2, 9. But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you should show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Show forth his excellencies. That's psalm language, isn't it? Uh, praise him and show forth the praises of him. 
uh, who in time past were no people, but are now the people of God, would not obtain mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And uh, uh, see that wonderful verse in uh, Psalm 96, uh, 3. <clears throat> that was uh, the theme verse uh, for uh, a meeting of the, um, uh, or an Urbana uh, gathering, an Urbana Missionary Conference. Uh, uh, most of you know about that. Uh, that was the theme verse in uh, 1976. Uh, the um, verse, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And that was wonderful to pick a, a theme like that uh, for a, a missionary conference because it certainly stressed doxological evangelism. And uh, uh, I was... Uh, given the opportunity to give the keynote address and so I could talk about the doxological evangelism and why he wanted to praise God. And uh, uh, that was uh, a marvelous opportunity for me. Uh, uh, I was, uh, I got my proper comeuppance immediately afterward. A student came up to me and uh, said, you know, I really appreciated that address. He said, um, I, I appreciated your enthusiasm and the way you presented it. But what did you say? <laughs> That's uh, in the can't, you can't win them all department, all right? So uh, there, uh, see, you see how, but you do see how wonderful this is, don't you? Uh, that Christ sings in the congregation. And Christ sings the missionary chant. <laughs> he sings among the Gentiles. He sings among the nations. And uh, I want you to realize that, that that's what you're being taught here, see? Uh, uh, I, uh, you see, it's, it's I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. Uh, the Lord sings in the midst of the congregation. Uh, my wife is a musician and uh, a choir director and all of that. She was on uh, the committee that edited this uh, nice red Trinity hymnal. Uh, but, um, uh, see, I, I, I don't do so well at singing. And uh, uh, <clears throat> for about, I guess it was about 43 years, uh, we lived together in the state of matrimony, <clears throat> and uh, things went quite well uh, uh, but after 43 years, one night right here in Hatboro, uh, on an evening service in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hatboro, um, she suddenly couldn't take it anymore, and she broke out into laughter. She just laughed and laughed. And people turned around and looked at her uh, to see what she was laughing at, now, of course, the people quite near knew what she was laughing at because they, too, heard me trying to sing bass. Uh, but uh, the others didn't know what was going on, and she just laughed. And I didn't think she ought to laugh. I mean, if she could keep from laughing for, for 43 years, uh, there was no reason why she couldn't go the distance uh, uh, until 50. And 50 would have been all right, but 43, no. I mean, she should not have laughed that night. Well, anyway, uh, you, you uh, really, though, the reason I, I told that uh, weird little story is, uh, you know, it is a remarkable thing. 
that for 43 years we could share a hymn book, you know. And uh, she would be really singing, and I would be making these noises, <laughs> and she's not even laughing. Uh, see, she was willing to share with me, uh, and uh, she sang with me uh, when she can really sing and I can't. And uh, I don't know what kind of voice Simon Peter had, you know, <laughs> but uh, he sang with Jesus in the upper room, and the other disciples sang with him. And uh, uh, I really want you to remember that. Remember. of the Father. And the significance of your singing the praises of the Father, that significance is all to be found in him. If it weren't for Jesus, you wouldn't be able to praise the Father at all. You could only fear his righteous judgment. Uh, But because of Jesus, you can sing the praises of God and not only sing uh, because of him, but actually sing with him. Uh, David was the sweet psalmist of Israel, but Uh, Jesus is that sweet psalmist. He's the heavenly choir master. Uh, He's the one who leads the praises of the people of God. And he's the one who leads the praises of the gospel that now go forth to all the ends of the earth. In the midst of the Gentiles, I will sing your praise. And right in this room, uh, there are represented uh, many different uh, countries, many different backgrounds. And uh, you seated in this room uh, have heard the praises of God uh, sung uh, in the languages of the nations. And uh, Jesus sings with all those uh, uh, people uh, people of God. Uh, uh, Way back in the first big missionary conference they had in Berlin, uh, the uh, Alka Indians, who were the, the fruit of the... The, the ministry of the, the Elliots, you know, Jim Elliot was killed by the Alcas, and uh, uh, those Alka Indians came uh, to that missionary conference in Berlin, and they sang the praises of God uh, in uh, an Alka in the Alka language and according to Alka uh, musical forms. It, it was uh, it, it was a marvelous experience uh, to hear those. Uh, One of those men had been one who had uh, thrust the spear into the back of Jim Elliot, and uh, uh, yet uh, there he was as a a believer uh, singing the praises of God. In the midst of the congregation, uh, I will sing your praise. Uh, Let's take a break now. Okay, uh, now we're looking at, uh, we've looked at Christ as the singer of the Psalms, Now I want to think about Christ as the one to whom we sing. Uh, You see, what uh, we do in the Psalms is to sing uh, Christ's praise. And uh, we sing uh, both uh, his, uh, we we sing his praise uh, both in terms of uh, descriptive praise and declarative praise. Uh, Descriptive Uh, is uh, that which uh, uh, describes the attributes of the Lord. Uh, He is mighty, he is wise, and so on. The the praises of God for the wonder of his wisdom uh, uh, and the the greatness of his goodness. Uh, This is all descriptive praise. Declarative praise, however, is a little different. That's declaring the works of the Lord. So... 
if uh, descriptive praise praises the name of the Lord for who he is, then declarative praise uh, describes the mighty acts of the Lord for what he's done. So you get both kinds of praise. And uh, uh, Vesterman, in his writings about the Psalms, uh, in the book called The Praises of Israel, uh, Klaus Vesterman uh, stresses those two, uh, that, that distinction between descriptive and declarative praise. And then Vesterman points out that in uh, the ancient Near East, uh, there are many uh, instances of descriptive praise uh, addressed to the gods, telling the gods how great they are and how wonderful they are. And actually, in polytheism, uh, descriptive praise uh, takes on an extra urgency. It's like the man who has a lot of girlfriends. He has to be very persuasive uh, to the one he's out with that night because she well realizes there are others on the horizon, you see. So he has to tell her that she is really super, right? Uh, so uh, that's the way it is with a polytheistic worshiper. Uh, uh, the, the gods, you see, there are a lot of gods around, and uh, you know it, and uh, your god knows it, and uh, therefore you've got to tell him he's the greatest if you want to get anything out of him. Uh, uh, don't forget, polytheistic worshipers were uh, pretty, uh, pretty uh, quid pro quo bunch. Uh, the, uh, what was it? Uh, when there was one great disaster in Rome, uh, there was a riot, and uh, they, they were stoning uh, the, the temple of the god that they had asked the benefits for, and the god didn't deliver. And so uh, uh, there was a, a kind of a, a, an attack, a protest. Well, uh, the, so the, 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 you do get descriptive praise in the... Um, uh, in the um, uh, Psalms, uh, telling God of the wonderful nature that he has uh, manifested. But what you don't find in the heathen uh, uh, poetry of the period, uh, Vesterman says, what you don't find is much declarative praise. There's not much praising of the gods for what they have done. And uh, he leaves it to you to try to figure out why that may be so. But uh, in, in the praises of Israel, there's lots of declarative praise, uh, praising God for what he's done, uh, praising God, for example, for delivering uh, Egypt, uh, delivering Israel from Egypt and bringing them up and bringing them into the land and giving them their inheritance and uh, giving them their king, uh, etc. So the praises of God uh, are both descriptive and declarative. Now, in terms... <clears throat> of uh, the descriptive praise, uh, we, we praise God uh, for, uh, excuse me, I'm, I've said it wrong, uh, the declarative praise first. Uh, we praise God for what he's done, his mighty works. Uh, he is the Lord, our maker, and therefore he's to be praised for his wisdom and power. He is the Lord, our ruler. His rule establishes the earth. Uh, Psalm 96.10, and his judgment will conclude history. And then he's the Lord, our Savior. And uh, here you have uh, uh, the great uh, uh, 
praise that you find in, uh, for the first time in Exodus 15, and then it's picked up again in Isaiah 12, and then picked up again in Psalm 118. Uh, the uh, statement, I will, <coughs> uh, uh, verse 2 of uh, Exodus 15, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The Lord is my strength and song, he has become my salvation. Uh, in uh, the song of, that was sung on the shores of the, uh, of the uh, Red Sea in Exodus 15 too, and then used to describe the eschatological triumph in Isaiah 12 too, and used also in a messianic context in Psalm 118 uh, verse 14. Uh, the song of Moses becomes the song of the Lamb because Jesus Christ is the Savior. Now, how, how do these songs uh, get directed toward Christ? Uh, they plainly are used in reference to Christ in uh, the book of Hebrews, right? In the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, uh, the, the, the quotations from songs of praise to the Lord are applied to Jesus Christ. And so uh, he is made the recipient of that praise. And uh, how do the book of Psalms themselves begin to prepare us for this? Well, in the fact that they speak of the new song that will be sung in that day. Uh, when God comes to save his people, then there's a new song that will be sung to him. Or to put it in another uh, way, uh, the Psalms begin to anticipate the new song because they begin now to sing to the Lord who is the, the recipient of the new song of praise. And so <clears throat> you have the, the mention of, of the new song that, that has to be sung and then that's put in the context of the final rejoicing. Uh, Psalm 96 uh, Verse 11, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all the fullness thereof, let the field exult and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples uh, with his truth. So the singing of uh, the latter days when the Lord comes and when he delivers his people, uh, this is uh, uh, the singing of those who are redeemed, who are saved. And they praise the Lord uh, who comes to save them. Uh, again, in Psalm 98, verse 8, let the floods clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his equity. And uh, the, uh, the judgment of the Lord, the shafat, the judgment that he accomplishes, is that which will set everything right. You see, the trees uh, rejoice, uh, the hills rejoice, uh, because... Uh, uh, that's what Paul picks up in Romans 8 when he talks about the whole creation groaning together for now, awaiting the adoption of the sons of God. And of course, here's the unfolding of that whole eschatological picture, uh, the sense in which the kingdom already comes with Christ and the sense in which the kingdom will ultimately come uh, it, it, with, 
with his second coming. And so uh, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. We do not yet see everything put right. And uh, uh, God's uh, judgments, God's justice is that which puts everything right, makes things as they ought to be. Uh, and uh, that's true among men, where it has to include the, the, the problem of sin and putting that right and redemption from sin. But it also includes the earth, which is uh, uh, to be made uh, anew. And so we have then the good news that is sung uh, which is a song of salvation, a song of deliverance. And uh, I mentioned to you the other day the passage in Isaiah 35 uh, where the, the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear. But see, that's in the same context, that everything will be set right. And uh, but what's so interesting, of course, is that Jesus comes as the Lord, as the one who can forgive sins, and it, 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 what's it make any difference, he says, whether I say, take up your bed and walk, or I say, your sins are forgiven. Uh, he can say one as easily as the other, uh, because he is the Lord. So he comes to claim uh, the, the right to bring in this uh, justice, this uh, uh, renewal and uh, restoration and renewal of everything. Uh, he comes to do all this because he is the Lord, uh, and therefore, he's to be praised as the Lord uh, who does it. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, his miracles are still signs. Uh, they are not that final consummation restoration of all things. Uh, that work begins spiritually in what he does uh, in making us his disciples. But uh, it won't be completed uh, cosmically. Uh, until he comes again. Uh, so things are still disordered in this world, and sin is still present in this world, and alas, even in us. Uh, but there is coming that day when it will all be done. But nevertheless, you see, we can already begin to sing the new song of the kingdom. Uh, you see, you ask the question, where does the kingdom language come from? When in the New Testament... Uh, we begin to hear John the Baptist saying that uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus speaks about the kingdom being at hand. Well, why would people understand that? What kind of kingdom is at hand anyway? Well, obviously, what's in view in the Old Testament is, the, is these promises from the Psalms, that the Lord comes, he comes to rule. And in the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, when God will set everything right in his coming. And so the new song that we sing is a song of praise to the Savior, and Jesus Christ comes to do that great work of salvation that has been promised, which is the coming of that kingdom of God, uh, which sets, sets things right again out of the disorder uh, of sin. <clears throat> And uh, uh, Jesus, of course, is the one uh, who, as Peter preaches uh, on Pentecost, uh, he is the one of whom it can be said in Psalm 16, For thou wilt not leave my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. Uh, Jesus Christ is given life from the Father. He is triumphant over the enemies. Uh, 
he enters into uh, heaven itself as our uh, victorious Lord. Uh, Psalm 24, mentioned earlier, uh, he is not only the righteous one with clean hands and a pure heart who can ascend into the hill of the Lord, uh, but he's also the victorious one. Uh, See, uh, lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Well, shall come in. Where has he been? Uh, uh, see, if this is uh, if this is Jerusalem, and uh, you're to open the gates for him to come in, uh, where has he been? Well, obviously, he's uh, been out uh, in in battle with the enemy, and he comes back in victory. He has he has conquered. He has triumphed. So lift up your heads. The King of Glory comes. He comes in. Uh, so that that psalm uh, pictures the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ, and therefore it's a psalm that applies quite clearly to the ascension. Uh, The uh, everlasting gates are not simply uh, the gates of Jerusalem as uh, the gates of an ancient city, uh, but uh, they are the gates of uh, the very kingdom of God that Jesus enters. And similarly, the psalms of refuge and trust, another category of the psalms, are psalms that find their uh, resolution in Jesus Christ. Uh, Psalm 7, Psalm 11, are both psalms of refuge, and they're quite a category. Uh, I've given a list of them further in your main outline. Uh, So there there are these psalms of refuge which have their uh, setting against the, the background of the law of Israel about the cities of refuge. If uh, someone was guilty of uh, uh, manslaughter, not murder, but manslaughter, he'd killed somebody unintentionally, uh, of course, the great problem immediately uh, was the problem of a kind of vendetta revenge that the uh, uh, friends and clan of the man who had died would want to exact vengeance on the one who had killed him. And so uh, the law provided that you could go to a city of refuge and be protected from uh, any vengeance until the matter was heard and uh, the law case was uh, convened and the matter was heard before the uh, priests and uh, the elders of the city. And the other place of refuge was the city of Jerusalem where you could go to the altar and lay hold of the hands of the horns of the altar And you remember after David's death, Joab did that to escape the vengeance of Solomon, but uh, Solomon ignored the the law, really, and uh, killed him anyway. But the the point of, of that idea of refuge, that someone who's unjustly accused can find a place of protection and can have his case heard and justice meted out. Now, that's what lies behind many of these psalms, uh, where uh, the psalmist flees to God for refuge. And it also accounts for some of the language in the refuge psalms, where the uh, psalmist protests that he is innocent, that he's not guilty of the things that he's been charged with. And sometimes uh, those protestations of innocence Uh, kind of bother us. It sounds like the psalmist is bragging about being so righteous or being so good. Uh, But uh, 
we must take account of the situation that he's saying, I am not guilty of these things that they're charging me with. I am innocent of uh, the blood that they claim I've shed. And therefore, uh, I take my case to the Lord, make him my refuge, and ask that he should be my judge. Because, of course, the judgment meted out uh, at the, the temple in Jerusalem, if somebody fled there, the judgment was to be God's judgment that would be meted out. So, <clears throat> you see in all these Psalms uh, that uh, uh, the Lord is our Savior, that we uh, come to him and find uh, our refuge in him. But we sing, we sing not only the mighty works of God, but we also sing the glorious name of God. <clears throat> we sing uh, the, to hallow God's name because God proclaims his name. Uh, we saw that when we looked at Exodus 33 and 34 uh, when uh, Moses said, show me your glory, and God declared his name to Moses. And uh, praise to God always involves lifting up the name of God. And it's in Jesus Christ, isn't it, that the name of God is finally and fully revealed to us. Uh, God reveals his name in the Old Testament as Yahweh, uh, but uh, he has more to reveal concerning who he is. So that uh, Moses said, show me your glory, and God proclaimed his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, God of Chesed and Emmet, and so on. Uh, but then uh, uh, Philip says the same thing. Lord, show us the Father, and that will uh, satisfy us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip? And you ask a question like that. Uh, he that has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? So uh, the Father is revealed then, finally and fully and ultimately, in Jesus Christ. So uh, Jesus reveals the Father, and therefore the name of the Father is revealed in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus tells his disciples to pray, hallowed be thy name, what is the name that, God, that Jesus has given him? It's the name Father. He teaches the disciples to pray, Abba, Father. And he uses that familiar name for God in the, the direct address of prayer uh, in a way that was very unusual in his time. Uh, to be sure, God is called Father in the Old Testament. Israel's called his son. Uh, but the people were not praying to God using that intimate term of Father. Uh, now, this is a point at which I do not want to get into trouble. Uh, because you all know that Abba, Father, is an intimate term of address and that uh, Abba, 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 uh, obviously is one of the first vocalizations of a very tiny infant, right? And since it's what the, the little kid says to start with, Abba, 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 uh, obviously he's saying Father. And uh, there's nobody else around to dispute it except Mother, and she has to listen because Father says it's Father, he's saying. Uh, Abba, 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 Abba. And of course, she gets back. Uh, she says, uh, uh, sometimes he isn't saying Abba, 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 but Mama, 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 and obviously that's Mother. So uh, there it is. So all languages, all languages uh, 
uh, used by doting parents uh, or even non-doting parents uh, have uh, picked up on uh, Abba and Mama. Uh, and uh, so I do have to tell you that this term uh, used is, uh, is baby talk for God. <laughs> it's the talk of a little child for the father, Abba. And Jesus calls his father Abba. And <laughs> uh, now the reason I'm, I'm worried is I'm very much afraid that uh, some of you who hear this today or who have heard it uh, previously uh, will, will go into a church sometime and stand up and say, Dear Daddy, uh, we want to talk to you this morning about our problems. And uh, that will get you into serious ecclesiastical difficulty. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm pointing that out to you right now. Now, how come Jesus can say Abba, but it's not very wise for us in a church situation to say, uh, Dear Pop, uh, or uh, 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 Dear Dad. Uh, well, I guess you have to say it's a difference in culture, you see, uh, that... Uh, Abba is an intimate term, but it, uh, it doesn't suggest uh, the, uh, what it suggests in our culture uh, in terms of total disrespect. <laughs> uh, this probably has uh, something to do with uh, fathers on TV and stuff like that and uh, other things to do with our whole culture. Uh, but anyway, uh, in our culture, it isn't wise because it sounds totally disrespectful. Um, I don't know how it works in other cultures than the U.S. culture, uh, whether there are ways of saying uh, fa- uh, uh, daddy son or something in, uh, <laughs> put on some uh, uh, dignifying uh, uh, appendix in Japanese. I, I, I don't know how it's done. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, you've got to be prudent in the way you do it. But please, uh, don't miss the point, though. Don't miss the point. <laughs> What Abba, the actual Aramaic word is given to us a couple times in, in, in the Bible, in Romans 8, you know. That we have the spirit of sonship. And because we have the spirit of sonship, we call God Abba. And uh, uh, in a way, I wish we did use that word Abba. You know, Abba, Father, we call upon you. Because uh, uh, Abba doesn't signify disrespect in our culture and yet it's the very word that Jesus used, Abba, Father. But uh, you get the point, don't you? Why do we call God Abba? What right do we have to call God Abba? Well, of course, the right that Jesus used. <laughs> uh, the right of the sonship that we have, whether male or female, we are all sons of God in Jesus Christ, Right? So we call him Abba, Father, because Jesus is the Son. And it's Jesus who teaches us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. So even the 78 scholars, or however many there are in that seminar, that throw in little uh, uh, pebbles to say which things Jesus really said, uh, even they vote that Jesus said Father, see? I think it's the only word they do let him say in the Lord's Prayer, but uh, they they let him say that. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but some of you do. Anyway, uh, Jesus uh, is the one who enables us to say, Our Father, 
which are in heaven. And he, he teaches us to say, hallowed be thy name. See? Well, what is the name that we hallow? The name Father. And Father means son, right? If he's a father, he's got a son. He wouldn't be a father if he didn't have a son. So he's a father. You can't be a father without having a child, can you? So God is the father because he has a son. And so it's Jesus, the son, that enables us to say father and to worship God as father, right? And uh, the relationship of the father and the son is the teaching of Jesus, uh, that he is on on an equality with the father, as his enemies were quick to point out. Uh, He says things that claim deity himself, Uh, equality with the Father. And so you see, in the Psalms, uh, where God is being adored and worshipped and praised as Lord for who he is, where his name is being praised, right? We now see that his name must be praised as the Father who is one with the Son. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. So that are praising, therefore, now of the Lord, our use of the psalms that adore the Lord as our God, our psalms which adore the Lord as our Father, and therefore adore the Lord, the Father who is one with the Son. Now, um, it has been argued by some, I think Cyril Richardson used to argue this, that... uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, runs into difficulty when we pray. Uh, that we won't know to whom to pray. And that if you pray to one person of the Trinity, uh, you're in trouble because you're praying uh, then uh, tritheistically, as though there are three gods, because our, our concept of uh, uh, the uh, Uh, The address of prayer uh, means that we are separating the Trinity into three gods. And on the other hand, if we just pray to God in terms of unity, uh, then we can't be thinking of uh, the three persons of the Trinity. And therefore, we'll be praying uh, either impersonally or to uh, a single person rather than to a triune person. Uh, Cyril Richardson uh, used to argue that way. Uh, But um, I don't know how it is in your experience and your prayers. Have you found found that to be a difficulty? Um, uh, Do you find it hard? Uh, Or can you pray, Lord, as uh, the New Testament does? And sometimes it's hard to to tell whether the word Lord in the New Testament is being used of the Father or of the Son or of the Trinity uh, without regard to whether Father or Son are in view. Uh, I think there is a certain ambiguity in the use of the New Testament, uh, which isn't really ambiguity, but comprehensiveness. It's realizing the unity of the Father and the Son Uh, Now, the kurios, uh, the Lord of the Old Testament, the the Greek term kurios used in the Old Testament, is a regular term for Jesus in the New Testament, the term Lord. Now, of course, uh, in uh, the Hellenistic culture, kurios is used of address to uh, um, uh, 
like sir, and it's, I think it's translated in some contexts, it's translated sir in the NIV, and that's a fair, fair translation of curios uh, uh, in certain social settings. Uh, but nevertheless, as it applies to Jesus, it surely means more than that, uh, even in the Gospels, uh, uh, with perhaps some exceptions, uh, but certainly by disciples in the Gospels, and then uh, in the epistles, uh, kurios has uh, the full implications of deity as it's applied to Jesus Christ. So you have then uh, the worship uh, of the name of the Lord uh, involving that. And I raised the question, have you found it to be a difficulty in your prayers? Uh, um, I can only say that it's never been a difficulty for me, that... that uh, it's possible. Uh, I don't find it difficult to be praying to the Son uh, with the Father also in the back of my mind. I don't find it difficult to pray to the Father, realizing I can only call him Father because of the Son. Um, and I don't find it difficult just to pray Lord without thinking uh, uh, in terms of Father, Son, but simply of the living God. Uh, uh, now, how about your experience? Uh, do you think Richardson is right? That, uh, in other words, in my own experience, I've found the, exactly the opposite. That if you ask me to define the Trinity and to describe the uh, interpersonal relations of the divine being, I, I, I'm totally stumped. I don't know how to do it. Uh, but in actual practice, to pray that way, uh, I don't find difficult at all.